Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Today on BespokeCast, we're joined by PJ Gorinsky. PJ is a colleague of mine at Bespoke. He runs Bespoke Market Intelligence, which is a survey-based uh, primary research uh, effort that we uh, go through uh, to serve as hedge fund clients um, and other clients who are looking for a specific insight uh, into a variety of different aspects of the of the equity universe. So uh, he's joining us here today to talk a little bit about about what Bespoke Market Intelligence does. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. PJ, welcome to BespokeCast. Thanks, George. Uh, happy to be talking to you today. So I think before we launch into what uh, Bespoke Market Intelligence is, it would be great to get a little bit about your background. Um, you're a Yale guy, correct? Yep, uh, graduated in 08, uh, played baseball at Yale, uh, and out of college went to work for a law firm. I uh, thought I was going to go to law school, but quickly realized that wasn't going to be for me, uh, and wound up getting a job at Glenview Capital, uh, working on the prop research team over there, which is kind of the start to my career in primary research, um, as it were. So Glenview's pretty large, right? Uh, do you know what their AUM looks like right now? I mean, they've, they've, they've jumped around a little bit. I know I know Larry Robbins has had a hard time with some healthcare stuff recently, um, but uh, they're, they're still one of the larger funds in, in the long short universe, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they're somewhere around eight to 10 billion under management now. I think when I was there, it was more like six billion under management. Um, so that was five or six years ago now. Uh, but yeah, they're still quite large. Uh, their their primary focus is on healthcare, but they also cover all the other sectors, so technology, retail, industrials. Uh, but Larry's bread and butter is definitely healthcare, and he's an exceptional investor, one of the the smartest people I think I've ever been around in my life, um, and really fascinating to to watch uh, him work at at morning meetings and just to see how he manages his portfolio. You said that you were on the prop research team there. For folks that aren't familiar with what that term means, what is the prop research team both at Glenview and sort of how does that tie into to what, what Bespoke Market Intel does? Sure. So a, a lot of hedge funds, actually most of them do uh, primary research to, to varying uh, levels, I guess. Um, Glenview was uh, one of the biggest users of primary research, one of the biggest generators of primary research. Uh, and what that is, is just going directly to the source, whether it be consumers or business participants and gathering qualitative data uh, that help to you know, confirm or refute assumptions that are going into your model. So if you think about the way that a hedge fund analyst or portfolio manager is, is managing their book, uh, they're maintaining their models, they're going to management meetings, they're going to conferences, they're consuming sell-side research. They're consuming third-party data, it's like the credit card panels and point-of-sale panels. Uh, and then they're also doing primary research. So when you hear hedge funds talk about their deep, fundamental, uh, structural research, they're talking about um, going directly to the source and understanding what's going on with business participants uh, and using that as a lens to kind of look at their assumptions so that they're not subject uh, to confirmation bias. They think that a company is either over or undervalued, uh, and they have some reasons for thinking that, but it's better to go directly to the source and understand what's actually happening uh, to see if there's a dislocation in sentiment and reality instead of just assuming that what they think is applicable to everybody. In other words, it's not just taking a financial statement and throwing some, you know, estimates on what uh, unit uh, sales growth and prices will do, but it's going out and saying, okay, what, are, what is actually happening in the market right now for this company's goods or service? And how is that going to feed into what I think their their financials are going to look like in the future and therefore what the, the actual stock is worth? Yeah, absolutely. And what's, what's really important about the primary research is that it tends to lead those other things uh, happening. So you can get ahead of a company, you know, growing in value or losing value by staying ahead of these 
these issues and staying close to what's going on with, with business participants and, and consumers. For instance, in a given industry, if you start to see really, really big changes, inflection points and volume trends, you you might catch that before the uh, industry's equity prices do just because you're close to what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So you think about, you know, the, the two different areas you could do it is either with businesses so looking at like the supply chain um, and understanding what's happening with participants around a company that you're invested in. So if you see a particular type of components, lead time stretching out, so the time that it takes to deliver the product from the supplier uh, to the to the manufacturer, um, or if you see them pulling in, that's going to tell you something about you know what's actually going on in the industry and and how business is going for the company. Uh, and in the same way with consumers, um, you could under understanding customer flows and how loyal they are to a brand and and you know what their go-to brand is for different uh, types of items that they buy is pretty important for predicting um, how this business is going to fare in the future. Just to rehash into sort of a bottom line concept, the basic idea uh, behind primary research is getting closer to uh, the market than other uh, investors are. And by the market, it's not the equity price, it's, it's getting closer to the end market for whatever the business does. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and what it's really useful for is generating ideas for defensively monitoring existing positions that you have for really taking those. It, it's not really used as much to call quarters um, as much as it's used to take the three or four structural themes behind an investment and really understanding everything there is to know uh, about those themes to know whether you're right or wrong and to track it on an ongoing basis. And it's just one of the many tools that institutional investors use in their mosaic of tools to, to run their portfolio. Got it. So you had mentioned that uh, this is sort of surveying both the uh, supply chain of a business um, as well as the consumers of a business. In, in some cases, both. In other cases, it, you know, one or the other, it sort of depends on the on the specific business model. How do you go about doing that? Is that something, you know, are you on the phone with people or what does that look like? Sure. So, so everyone may remember, I guess, five or six years ago, there was quite a bit of controversy around the expert networks. And that's traditionally been the main uh, tool used by hedge funds to gather primary source data. Um, there are expert networks in the world like GLG and GuidePoint um, where you can a hedge fund can pay essentially to talk to a business participant um, and they can do as many calls as they want and in as many different uh, industries as they want. Um, and at the time there was some controversy around it because some hedge funds were talking to experts and and you know getting information that they shouldn't be getting for them. So for um, instance, for instance, just to uh, clarify that, an expert network is I pick up the phone and I get to talk to somebody who is in the business's supply chain or is at a competitor of the business or is somehow involved with the industry. And that can be good because they might have information that's that's a greater insight, which could be totally fine, but it also creates an opportunity for there to be disclosures that, that aren't legal, that are that are basically insider trading. Yeah, that's exactly right. And most hedge funds do it uh, in a complete above board compliant way. Uh, obviously, you saw the news articles from you know five or six years ago, you were, you'd see that there were a couple that, that didn't. Um, Glenview was one that was always best in class in terms of compliance, and I was trained extremely rigorously on that front. Um, but as I was doing the research and saw that hedge funds were starting to get a little bit more cautious about using expert networks, I thought that using surveys would be a great tool to, to do this kind of research because they're uh, an anonymous blend of participants. Um, so it's more compliant to begin with. They're more cost effective to run. They're more quantitatively significant. So if you think about um, doing primary research through expert network calls and you're going to talk to 10 people on the phone, if you could survey 100 or 200 or 300 of those same people or you know, 1,500 consumers or 5,000 consumers, you're getting to a much higher scale, you're getting to a much better quantitative data set to analyze, and you're not having your view skewed potentially by a smaller set of people and maybe one or two of them on the phone um, sounded much more convincing or that they knew what they were talking about and they led you astray because they only represented a very small slice of what's actually going on out there. For, for economics, 
focused people, this would be sort of like the difference between calling up a single executive or listening to one earnings call and looking at something like the ISM manufacturing composite, right? One uh, where in the former, you're you're opening yourself to selection bias and you're opening yourself to uh, too small of a sample to get a realistic idea of what's going on with something like the ISM or uh, markets PMI, you get a much bigger sample. So effectively, not only does the survey base work mean that everyone's anonymized, you might get a response from somebody that uh, could hypothetically tell you some something you shouldn't know, but that doesn't matter because A, it's anonymized, and B, they're picking from a select set of options as opposed to just tell me something about the company you work at. Um, and on top of that, you get more more data from a wider variety of sources, which should all else being equal, give you a better idea of what's going on. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, exactly. And and kind of the point you made that's really critical is when you design the survey, you control the content that goes in and comes out of it because you're picking the questions and you're picking the responses that they, they can choose from. So you can make sure that there's nothing um, nothing risky in terms of compliance in the survey at all to begin with and you'll just get the feedback that you want that is totally in line with what's acceptable to collect and most of the work that that we do is on consumers and and they're viewed as a very vanilla type of research because um, you're asking consumers questions about their point of view as a consumer not as a business participant that would have fiduciary obligations to other parties to not disclose information about their relationships with other parties um, so that was kind of the genesis for the idea to start Bespoke Intel and, and to meet with Justin and Paul back in 2012 um, was that there seemed to be a need for doing this research in, in a better way um, and a more time efficient way. Because the other thing that's really important to know about primary research is you can imagine that when you're collecting reams of data across consumers and businesses that every single data point that you get is not extremely actionable. You'll You'll go through nine data points that are not going to move the needle to get to that tenth one that will be actionable that will tell you something that you um, that you move on and if you're doing it by doing you know you're doing that research through calls and spending hours on the phone with people uh, you could kind of spin your wheels before getting to it and when you use surveys it's just much more time efficient and the value add that we have for, for hedge funds and private equity firms that we deal with is we act as a filter that sits on top of this massive, um, massive pile of data that we're regularly collecting, and we bubble to the surface the most interesting takeaways, and then still give them the underlying data to dig into. So for us, it's really fascinating work to do because we're constantly staying engaged with really interesting investment theses and understanding changes in environments and consumers and businesses. Um, finding companies that are over or undervalued and then presenting that to our clients and, and giving them the opportunity to dig into the data and engage with us to ask us questions, which usually generates organically more things for us to look into. So um, it's really fascinating for, for me uh, to do this work on a regular basis. And, and we hope at least that our, our clients are finding it really useful too. And as you had mentioned, it's not just looking at a, a snapshot in time. So you're not going to Netflix consumers one random month and saying, how do you feel about prices or whatever, right? It's not a snapshot. It's a time series for most of the work you do, correct? So you're looking at, it, again, using the example of Netflix and prices, you're looking at what they feel about prices two years ago, uh, seven quarters ago, six quarters ago, five quarters ago, four, you know, it, it gives you a, a chance to look at stuff over time, which can be very helpful as well. Yeah. When it comes to doing survey work, the most important thing is to have a really reliable panel of consumers that you test over time. So our rule of thumb is that we always keep our core questions and everything that we cover the same over time. And then we organically add to it depending on what's happening in the world. So that Netflix example, you can imagine that we've been asking about subscriber rates, churn, original content for a really long time. And then when an issue came up, like they were administering a price increase, we would add questions to the survey to ask consumers on a regular basis, ongoing basis, how they felt about the price increases, how they felt about the value at the new price and whether they would cancel. And that's you know a way for us to, to track the historical data because knowing point in time right now how consumers feel about original content is not nearly as valuable as being able to show how those feelings have trended over the past four years. 
uh, but then we also get to add the new stuff and whenever something happens and we could kind of respond and react really quickly. So we're filling in both, uh, both knowledge gaps. And I think that's a really good point too, that consumers are inherently unreliable in their responses. Uh, anybody that's ever worked with this survey data, and I, I've done some work with you guys and I, I've seen the raw data takes, you can't just go out and ask a question and expect to get an exact answer. It, there is a ton of skill and, and a ton of analytical horsepower that is required to go into the data and say, okay, is this person actually saying what we think they're saying, or is this person saying something completely different? Not just in terms of question wording, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but also in terms of understanding that people are relative as opposed to sort of absolute. We're used to dealing with economic statistics like non-farm payrolls where you can, you know, this is the number of jobs or this is the unemployment rate this like hard thing but if you ask a consumer how they feel that's going to change over time and it's going to change relative to other consumers and it's it's not sort of a hard and fast um absolute thing so using the the different questions that that are presented to each panel using the different approaches as far as uh, ranking or uh, value scores or yes no questions that all becomes really important in sort of getting an idea of what consumers are feeling and i feel like looking at other how other consumer confidence data is interpreted you know compared to how we sort of look at data internally I, I, I think there's a very big knowledge gap in terms of how people look at, at raw take from consumers. Does that, do you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's also, you know, in the, in the hedge fund world, there have been a lot of changes recently in the types of third party data that they use and how they use it. So we always tell our clients that you could certainly use our data to plug into models and to, to, um, to look at it that way quantitatively but we don't think that it should be used as much for call and quarters as much as it should be used for you know deep fundamental research of structural trends so they'll take you know the hard data like credit card data providers and point of sale data providers and they'll plug it into quant models and generate projections for the quarter um, with with surveys as you alluded to before um, the consumer is not incredibly reliable when it comes to even remembering what they did in the last month, let alone in the last week. Um, so if you're trying to like gauge revenue or traffic, um, it's, it's helpful directionally, but it shouldn't be something that you take the percentage of consumers that say they own an iPhone and then try to come up with a projection for iPhone ownership or iPhone sales over the last three months. It's just not going to be super reliable. But when you take a data point that we gather over the last three years that tells us that um, iPhone owners are not refreshing their smartphone as often as they had three years ago, that's a really valuable data point when you're when you're making your model and maintaining your model to know that people aren't refreshing their their smartphones as frequently as they used to, and that iPhone owners are actually refreshing less frequently than you know Samsung smartphone owners and those are really valuable data points to know it's a little harder for um, for analysts to be able to say you know this is the direct ROI that I get from using this research when they use credit card data they could plug it into models project and call the quarter and then say this is the exact ROI that I got from using this research um, on the other side though it's really important to know these trends are happening so you don't get run over by a train uh, just by knowing that you know people aren't refreshing their phones phones as often as they used to is a valuable thing for for people to know and to include in their mosaic of research. Speaking of getting run over by a train, um, we recently saw uh, Bill Ackman finally um, throw in the towel on Valiant. Um, another stock he's been involved in is is Chipotle. Um, you, I think you had some interesting data on Chipotle that that you wanted to talk about. Um, it'd be great to hear about that. Um, they're, they did get hit kind of out of nowhere with this uh, food safety issue. There were a number of, uh, I think it was E. coli uh, outbreaks at a number of different Chipotles, and they've sort of had to reevaluate how they stand. So is there some interesting stuff you've seen in terms of the consumer's perception or relationship to that brand? And I, and I think this is a fascinating example of one where you know, the survey work can really show you what the consumer is thinking, even if it doesn't mean you know how many burritos Chipotle is going to sell in their, in their upcoming quarter. 
Yeah, and this is this is one topic where survey work is incredibly uh, helpful and important because uh, you know obviously customer trust is going to decline after there were E. coli and norovirus issues, um, and knowing when that customer trust comes back, if it comes back is really, really important. And a lot of our clients have asked us, I mean, obviously we, we added it to our surveys because we thought it was important to cover, but we got a ton of requests from clients to edit because it's an important issue. And what we had found was that obviously traffic in our surveys declined a lot and customer trust declined a lot. Um, and in a nutshell, you know, we saw people coming back to Chipotle, but they're not going as frequently as they once did. And, you know, we'd listen to Chipotle earnings calls and they would bucket their customer types. So they would talk about their most hardcore frequent user, the moderate user, and then the least frequent user. And what we found was that that most frequent user came back fairly quickly, um, but still wasn't going as, as often as they used to. And that least frequent customer was was fairly slow to come back and still isn't going nearly as frequently as they used to. So in the surveys, we're seeing people coming back, but not coming back, not going as frequently as they used to. And the the trust is starting to come back. Um, the people that are concerned about going there are starting to subside, but we haven't seen the positive inflection point in people going as often as they did before the, the food safety issues. And we may never see that. I mean, it's this sort of psychological thing that human beings do where something is going really strongly in one direction and then something changes and it, it just never gets back to the way it was. You know, that that seems to be something that you see, not just with regards to brand trust with a brand like Chipotle or any other brand, but but also in markets or, or in economics elsewhere, people sometimes have a hard time getting back to a high watermark. Yeah, and I mean, we also look at like, you, you know, you. You look at another example, I believe it was Jack in the Box had uh, an E. coli issue, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and it took consumers something like 18 to 24 months to to kind of get back to, to pre-food safety issue levels. And at this point now with Chipotle, I believe we're a little, we're around, we're approaching the 18-month mark. So that's why our, our surveys, we're, we're really excited to see what happens in the next quarterly survey. and in our monthly surveys going forward because we're at the point now where we should start to see the positive inflection point. The, <clears throat> the problem right now for Chipotle is there are just so many fast casual options out there for consumers. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, obviously it's, it, it's no secret that consumers in general are starting to try to get a little bit more healthy. It's a trend that's kind of picked up in the surveys that we've been running. And uh, restaurant chains that align themselves well with those with that trend is done well. So like Panera, for example, um, is one that consumers view as a healthy option. And we even saw evidence in our surveys when we kind of drilled into the data that showed that, you know, Chipotle customers who weren't going to Chipotle as frequently were going to Panera instead. They were kind of the primary beneficiary of the Chipotle traffic leak. Um, so that's something that, um, you know, when you look at Chipotle, we'd expect to see the, the the customer trust come back and the positive inflection point happen, but they have so many options out there right now that it might make it a little bit of a different story than when Jack in the Box bounced back years ago, just because there are so many other, you know, fast casual chains that they could go to instead. It's interesting too that you emphasize that part of the damage to Chipotle's brand was visible in, in the surveys in terms of people who go to Chipotle, but not very often, right? Those people dropping their visit count by a certain amount. I When I go to the Chipotle that, that's near me down here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on a, on a busy time of the day, so for instance, like 1 p.m. or noon or on a weekday or 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. On a, on a weekend, whatever, it's busy still. I mean, it's it's not line out the door like some of the New York City Chipotles are, but it, it's still busy. It's other times, sort of the down times, when you could shoot a cannon through that place, you know, it, where there's just nobody there in the sort of slack hours. So you can sort of see that anecdotally, but it's a lot harder to see it than if you look at, at the hard data um, from consumers where you're discussing sort of what they see. So so that, that that's really interesting. Is there any other interesting stuff you've seen recently from other consumer-oriented companies that, that you'd like to talk about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we recently just finished up a, a new volume of our survey work on GameStop, and it's one example where. Um, what does like GameStop do, just in case people aren't familiar? I think everyone's familiar with Chipotle, but GameStop's maybe a little bit more obscure. Yeah, sure. They they sell video games, um, so you know PlayStation games, Xbox games, different consoles. Um, they also sell some you know apparel and uh, other products like that. Um, so they focus on the video game industry. So it's a little bit more of a specialized product than something that would appeal to the the mass consumer in the U.S. Um, but like some of the other names that we like to study, um, there it's a very divided name in terms of how folks feel about it. It has a pretty high short interest, which means a lot of people are betting against it. And the main reason for that is um, a lot of people think it's kind of going the way of Blockbuster. So um, Blockbuster went out of business essentially when you know the Netflix of the world popped up and made it more convenient and fun to watch at home um, than having to go to a Blockbuster and, and, and rent a, a movie. Uh, GameStop, there's a, a phenomenon going on right now where video gamers are starting to buy their games via digital downloads more than they have in the past. I, that's and, that's me. So I, I don't I'm not a huge hardcore gamer. I occasionally, you know, blow some steam off with a, well, a little bit of strategy gaming or first person shooter stuff or whatever. I only like get Duke loses in the in the NCAA tournament in the second round. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I, I definitely had to go. I had to go blow off some steam after my Blue Devils uh, lost to South Carolina on Sunday night. Um, but yeah, so when I download games I, or when I buy games, I the idea of going to a store and you know getting a CD-ROM and using that to install a game is just I, I can't imagine doing that. I did that when I was a lot younger, when I was in like middle school or high school or whatever. But now, I, I mean, I use a service called Steam where you buy a game and it gets installed automatically and it's all seamless. You know, I, I just can't imagine buying a game as a physical hard copy, the same as I can't imagine going to a Blockbuster. So that that really resonates with me as somebody who's in his twenties and sort of you know a casual gamer like sometimes, and and it's so much easier to download stuff instead of going and buying it yeah so so i guess the what the reason why some guys find gamestop interesting is it's a fairly cheap stock in terms of its valuation and it has a high short interest against it so the reason people are betting against it is the shift towards digital games and then also amazon it, much like they take share from everybody else is taking share from gamestop and they're offering 20 percent off of new games which you could obviously, if, if you have an Amazon Prime membership, and you could see how that would be really attractive for a gamer to buy from Amazon instead of GameStop. So not so, only are you seeing competition in terms of the shift from physical to digital, but it's also a competition in terms of why bother going to the mall to buy a game when you can just have it delivered to your door by Amazon. Yeah, exactly. And, and what we're seeing is that the Amazon threat is actually a bigger threat than the digital game threat. And why is uh, that? The digital downloads growing. Um, so, and this is a perfect example of where the survey work is really interesting, that we're finding that a higher percentage of consumers are downloading their games through GameStop than the market's expecting right now based on conversations we're having with folks. Um, so they're all assuming digital download share increases that's bad for GameStop, which is true. But GameStop has a higher share of that than people think. Um, and what we think has been happening is Amazon's been taking share and disc, disc sales in general have been down. So there is an interesting dynamic with video gamers that's different than what happened with Blockbuster, um, whereas there's, there's this culture of loyalty to GameStop among, um, among gamers. So maybe not the fringe, less frequent gamer, but uh, among like hardcore frequent gamers. They have a very strong sense of loyalty to GameStop. They include them in their process of buying games. They see a lot of value in it. And there's also this culture of trading in games. So a lot of their physical games that they have, they like to trade in, buy used games, or trade them in to get credits to download new games. So there are some differences with the GameStop story than there was with Blockbuster. Um, and you know we're seeing a more and more of a push toward, towards digital, but GameStop customers aren't convinced that GameStop won't have a role in a more digitally oriented gaming world. Um, so these, and now on top of all that, there's an, an increasing desire to have like streaming services to play video games. 
Um, so you would think that at some point, you know, the Netflix of uh, video game streaming would emerge. And right now you have PlayStation offering their own version of it and Xbox offering its own version of it. But there isn't a platform that sh that you could stream games whenever you want that goes across both consoles or if you include Nintendo in that across all consoles. Um, so you would think that somebody would emerge as a player to do that. GameStop could with their customer loyalty could be a possibility, but we can't foresee that whether that would happen or not because that would require, you know, GameStop management to go down that path and choose to do something like that. You could also think of, you know, any of the video game publishers coming up with a solution like that too. Um, so, so, so just that streaming idea, that's interesting. So as opposed to download, um, a file from a remote location, it ends up on your computer and then your computer runs all the graphics and all the audio and everything that, that make a video game an immersive digital environment. Instead of that, it's, it's literally like, um, Netflix where all of the video is stored somewhere else and you're playing the game over the cloud. Effectively, your computer is putting in in keystrokes it's being sent over the cloud computed off out in the ether and then brought back to you in the form of of a stream of audiovisual input is that is that sort of how that or output sorry is that sort of how that would work yeah and and thus far up until recently playstation for example was only offering like ps3 games through their streaming offering and not the newer games which would be ps4 games and they recently announced that they're going to start making PS4 games available on the streaming option. So that's definitely something to kind of look out for and watch for because um, it's a it's there's definitely a growing hunger for the for the, the the gamer to be able to stream games instead of having to download them to their their consoles. And if the the you know PS4s and Xbox Ones of the world can get the newer content up there. I'm sure they would have a lot of work to do ironing out deals with the, the actual publishers to do that, um, but it could be a really interesting, you know, path forward for them, and definitely something to watch for GameStop, um, because that would obviously, you know, would harm their business if if more of the newer games were available on uh, on the streaming services. But even if you look at like the new the new hardware releases, so virtual reality headsets and the new Nintendo Switch system, um, we saw a much higher percentage of those sales going to Amazon than GameStop. So that would that's that that's part of the reason we think Amazon right now is is an underappreciated risk to, to GameStop. Cool. Yeah, the, I, there's there are so many of these consumer stories and and actually it, it's true both for consumer uh, business business to consumer selling and uh, business to business selling as well. Um, there are so many of these stories where the intricacies of the priorities for the people spending money, the priorities for the people trying to make money, where everyone can pull different levers to sort of make it work best for them. A lot of these consumer stories or a lot of these business stories, business model stories uh, can get really complex really quickly. Um, so it, it's sort of interesting to hear how how the regular work on GameStop is helping to cut through some of that that sort of muddiness around what what is affecting that business. Another interesting area that kind of that you know that kind of dovetails into is looking at you know clo <clears throat> clothing apparel for example. Um, you know a lot of people in that cover retail stocks are kind of confused with you know what's going on with the different names in that space if you look at you know the regular department stores versus off-price department stores versus branded apparel stores and luxury department stores um, there's no secret that traffic is shifting away from malls businesses are seeing a lot of their a lot of customers go online and there's a lot of effort out there to understand what which which retailers keep consumers coming and why um, so we've done a lot of work recently on the off-price department stores because the stocks have done really well. Uh, recently, a lot of you know clients that we work for would love to to you know be able to short them if there was a catalyst for shorting them. And the main one that's been discussed is oh well you know they've done really well recently because department stores haven't done well, which means they've had inventory overhang, which has led to you know the off-price guys like Burlington and Ross and TJ Maxx getting really good product selection and attracting more customers. So once department stores correct inventory and product selection declines at 
the off-price guys that we're going to see consumers migrate away, and that's the catalyst for shorting them. Um, so far, at least in our survey work, that doesn't seem to be happening. And the main reason for it is when a consumer goes to the off-price department store, they're least likely to price check online than any other channel that we check. So whether it's regular department stores, branded apparel, oh. luxury. So if you're so holding... it's almost like the it's almost like the off-price retailers have internalized with consumers the idea that their price is going to be either the best or so close to the best that it's not worth checking. And oh, also by the way, if you go and you know check prices, you might miss out on this great deal. Right. So if you're holding on to a brand name polo shirt at TJ Maxx. You probably don't think that you would get it cheaper than if you know if you Googled it online. But if you're holding that same polo shirt at Macy's, you're much more likely to check online to see if you can get it cheaper before you buy it. And that's the dynamic that we see going on with consumers now. Is you know the fact is costs of living and healthcare and and everything in their lives are going up, and they're starting to value experiences over products. So they have aspirational experiences, not as much aspirational product purchases anymore. So they're willing to to go to the off-price retailers to buy instead of going to you know your Macy's or your Nordstrom of the world to to buy products. Um, so that's a, it's a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing where you know people are looking for this catalyst, being that selection is going to decline at off-price department stores, and we're certainly tracking it to see if it happens. Um, but we think that, that that price mechanism is a pretty strong moat for the off-price department stores to keep consumers coming, um, and it might defend against that catalyst that other people are hoping will, will play out. Um, so that's another one where we thought there was some really interesting stuff to look at, because at the end of the day, what's driving consumers to the stores are whether they have whether the store has a desirable product that they want to buy, if they have unique products that they can't buy elsewhere, and if they feel like they're getting a good value for the product, and if they feel like they're getting a great in-store experience when they shop. So like in, not to get off topic, but when you go, when you look at the e-commerce world, outside of Amazon, one name that's always been really interesting to us is Etsy, because they have an overwhelming feedback from consumers that they know they're getting unique products from them that they can't get elsewhere. So the threat of consumers leaving them for a competitor uh, is much lower than at another e-commerce site like a Groupon, for example. Um, so those are things that we look for, those those unique products that they can't get elsewhere or lower likelihood to price check somewhere else because they know they're getting great value um, when they're when they're buying from them. That's a really, really interesting one. I, I just, I've talked to a lot of people who are negative on these sort of off-price guys, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is as long as they keep that inventory coming in from department stores, that the consumer has such a strong perception of them that their other uh, competitive failures are just not going to be an issue. Yeah, as, as long as consumers are more sensitive to price than they are to the exact selection of products at the stores, they're going to continue to do well and it's it's a dynamic that we'll continue to track uh going forward but right now the off-price retailers are really popular with consumers we also take a fair bit of time looking at consumer surveys for sort of macroeconomic insight as well um you and i collaborate regularly on a report called bespoke consumer bespoke market intelligence consumer pulse um, where we basically do a monthly survey of what's going on in the mind of American consumers. Um, so it'd be great to sort of walk through some of that with you and, and talk about how we build that um, because it's it's pretty comprehensive. The um, final document ends up being um, 47 pages. Um, so put out once a month. Um, talk a little bit about how we've seen developments um, evolve for the, not not specific companies, but also for sort of the, the consumer as a whole over the last few years, and in part through our tracking we do with Pulse. Yeah, sure. So the, the Consumer Pulse is a monthly survey that we run. It's 1,500 US consumers balanced to census. So the idea there is to map it to what the, U, the the demographic composition of the U.S. looks like and track that over time. And we keep the panel really consistent. 
Um, so we have this massive amount of data that we could use and we could cut up. Um, and what jumps out to me ab about the, the data most recently is that consumer confidence uh, really went up a lot recently in our in our survey. So that was one that we've been, and, and, and it had subsequently come out that consumer confidence um, was really strong and our survey was a pretty good leading indicator for that. Um, so we, we test everything from consumer confidence, their feelings about their personal finances, their employment, um, how they're interacting with, with buying different types of items from, you know, cars to, you know, the housing market, uh, you know, different consumer electronics products or retail shopping. And it's just really great um, ongoing tracker that helps our clients pick stocks essentially that could be interesting that are showing some strength and also follow those macro issues um, that should matter to them if they're following the market in general yeah so one of the one of the really interesting ones that we saw was um in the immediate aftermath of the election uh we saw the percentage of consumers who were likely or very likely to purchase a home in the next year uh shoot over 15 percent um which if you think about the size of the uh, U.S. housing market, um, you know, we do in the neighborhood of five million new home sales or six million new home sales a year. Or excuse me, if you think about the size of the U.S. housing market, we do in the neighborhood of six million existing home sales per year and less than a million new home sales per year. So the idea of 15% of people falling into one of those two categories, those both those both have to rise a fair bit if that if that came if that was borne out of course as we said earlier the other thing that you have to keep in mind with these surveys is that the the absolute number is rarely what you want to look at it's it's the trend it's how people think about the the question that's more important than sort of what the absolute number is so we don't actually think that home sales are going to double in the next year um but it, it is still interesting that the for a huge number of consumers the election effectively was a transition point from everything is bad to everything is awesome, like a light switch. Um, have you ever seen anything like that in any of the other survey work you've done, whether it's specific companies, whether it's um, cons you know consumers more broadly, whether it's businesses, has there ever been that sort of light switch like catalyst that you've seen, BJ? No, so we, I, to be honest, we haven't. Usually, the changes that we see are more gradual over time than the light switch change that we saw recently with consumers in terms of their confidence. So, an example of where we'd see something over time is, you know, throughout our surveys, traffic at at Target has declined, but it was over a period of you know 24 months or so. And when we did some work on it, we we figured out that they were much more vulnerable to Amazon taking share than other retailers like a Walmart, um, mostly because Walmart customers were more focused on grocery than Target customers are. Um, so usually it's the change is more gradual. Um, this one was definitely, and, and obviously there is a more of an event that spurred the change, um, but we haven't seen any type of movement that was that much of a light switch move in any of the other work that we've done so far. And do you think that that's a realistic uh, leading indicator, or do you think it's it's purely a, a short-term psychological thing, or is there no way to know yet? So, like you said, I wouldn't take it as like the absolute number where you're not going to assume that that home sales are going to double. Um, also, you know, a big part of that is consumers are going to say that they're going to do something. The percentage of them that will actually follow through with that um, is obviously a lot lower and will vary depending on what you're asking them about. Uh, so the important thing to us is the, the directional move in confidence and who knows what will actually happen and, and whether they'll follow through with it. But the directional move is an important thing to, to keep in mind as you just evaluate everything in the world right now and consider whether, the, whether it's an overreaction uh, you know, positively and that it'll kind of regress back to the mean as things settle out and, and move forward. Um, or if things are just going to be great for everybody and, you know, and you could, you know, figure out how that'll impact what you're looking at. Another interesting one that we've that we've seen in the pulse tracking and an example of the individual um, uh, sort of company stuff you can do is the Volkswagen scandal. So um, Volkswagen was obviously um, introduced or was was. It was alleged that they 
cheated on a bunch of um, emissions tests in the U.S. and that they had lied essentially about uh, how clean the emissions coming out of their cars were. So um, in January uh, and June of last year, both uh, we saw no uh, consumers report a recent purchase of a, of a Volkswagen um, but but that's actually recovered quite dramatically and and in the most recent data over three uh, over three percent of consumers reported a um, a uh, purchase of a Volkswagen related you know just over the last three months so um, that's an interesting one where the data has really shifted and you've been able to catch it if not in real time then pretty close um around a very specific consumer company like like volkswagen yeah absolutely and uh, another one that i think is pretty interesting um is if you look at you know names like facebook and, and snapchat we've been tracking them for you know 30 plus months in our surveys so when a name like Snapchat was gonna IPO, we were in a unique position where we had so much more historical survey data than anybody else did. And some of the interesting things that I think we had on it um, were one, we saw some signs that there were impacts from Instagram stories in traffic between consumers who use both Instagram and Snapchat at the time that Instagram stories was released. And then another you know, potentially cautious data point that we had on Snapchat um, was that the the slightly older demographic of I believe 45 to 54 had a much lower net promoter score it was actually quite negative compared to younger demographics and compared to what 45 to 54 year olds showed for their net promoter score for Instagram and Facebook and the quick background on net promoter score um, a lot of market research firms and hedge funds and private equity firms use it as a barometer for understanding customer loyalty and the likelihood that a company will organically grow in the future. And the way that you collect the data is you ask users of a product or a, a, a service how likely they would be to recommend it to a friend on a scale of zero to 10. I'm sure most people have gotten questions like this sent to them from you know any of the providers that they use for stuff. If you rate it a zero to six, you're considered to be a detractor seven or eight you're passive nine or ten you're a promoter and the score is calculated by taking the percentage of people who are promoters and subtracting the detractors and you don't include the passives in the analysis if it's a positive net promoter score it's thought to be a leading indicator of future organic growth and a number over 30 is considered to be quite positive a negative number is you know an indicator for negative organic growth within that either within the user base or within specific demographics and when we cut it up by demographics we found that snapchat was had a much lower net promoter score among the 45 to 54 year old user base um, so that was something that that we thought was really interesting to go around with the to go along with the instagram uh, stories uh, data point as well um, and in general, you know, Snapchat tests really well in our surveys, you know, it has for a while. It's obviously it's going to look really good when it's grown in popularity over the last two and a half, three years as much as it has. Um, but those were two cautionary data points that we had sent out to clients because we thought they were definitely worth uh, taking into account when, you know, projecting what the value of the company would be in the future. It's also interesting, too, to think about um, the frequency of visits. So, for instance, among 18 to 24 year olds, Snapchat is visited daily. 42 percent um, of our respondents in that age bracket from the U.S. And again, that's balanced to census uh, go have used Snapchat that day. Um, another 16 percent used it within the past week. Uh, with 22% having never used it at all. And we have a few other age categories there. I just don't want to throw out too many numbers. But if you compare that to all respondents, only 21% of all respondents used it that day, 10% uh, within the past week, and more than half had never used it before. So, so Snapchat really has an age divide where to get to the sort of growth assumptions that you need to have for Snapchat's current valuation to make sense, you have to bet that that technology will be adopted by older people in a really big way and you just don't you just don't see that evidence of that in in the survey data so it's been interesting to see snap kind of rocket higher when the data that we see suggests that it, it it's it's not where it should be at yeah and and that's you know 
when you get to more qualitative issues with social media usage, what we've found above all else that matters when it comes to social media engagement uh, is the ability for consumers to be able to find and interact with their friends. And obviously Facebook is the most ubiquitous platform and you know older generations have a much easier time finding their friends on it than they do on Snapchat or you know to a lesser extent Instagram. Uh, so what's really important is that those people be able to find their connections and they just aren't adding connections on Snapchat as often as they are on Instagram or, or on Facebook. Um, at the same time, we've seen you know, interesting trends with Facebook where everybody has it, but we're, we're seeing a decline among the youngest population. So we surveyed teens and you know, or 13 to 17 years old and millennials and you know the the percentage of consumers and those demographics that have an account are still quite high but their usage of it isn't as frequent and it's almost viewed to younger respondents as more like a utility uh, where they have it they have it so that they could stay in touch with people they have it so that they use it for more formal interactions where they would want to share like a family photo or news with family and friends but when it comes to for younger respondents, you know, the more casual, more frequent, more fun posts, those are all going to Snapchat and to Instagram. Um, and Instagram has done extremely well, you know, with younger respondents, neck and neck with Snapchat. And it really shows out in our data to be a very valuable acquisition for Facebook because as they're having some of their engagement from the younger respondents erode. Um, Instagram continues to pick up steam and, and is doing really well and, and WhatsApp is actually doing really well in our, our surveys too. So they've certainly made some, some very smart acquisitions. PJ, I think it'd be great to close out our little conversation here with uh, trading rich versus trading cheap. This is a segment we do regularly where we talk about subjects that might be interesting to you or you know, sort of more generally, um, trading rich versus trading cheap. So uh, you're a Queens guy. Um, you have spent, um, what, pretty much your entire life, except for your time in Yale, uh, living in the borough. Is that correct? Yeah. So do you think the borough of Queens is trading rich or trading cheap? Um, I'd say it's trading cheap. I think, you know, I'll always say that it's it's on the come up. Um, you know, I, I think in as far as like if you look at New York, Manhattan has always been uh, the place where people go and Brooklyn has uh, evolved over the last five to ten years and has become a really popular place for young people to live and, you know, phenomenal places for them to go out to eat and, and spend some time. Um, but I guess I'll always say that, that Queens is, is on the come up and hopefully will get more popular uh, with people coming there too. Okay, so related to Queens, uh, you played baseball at Yale. Um, you are an avid Met fan. Are the Mets trading rich or trading cheap for the 2017 season? Uh, so if you're a Mets fan and you've been a Mets fan your whole life, uh, that makes you a, a pessimist by nature. So I'm going to say <laughs> trading rich um, because I don't want to let my hopes get up for the season. Um I, I love the team. I've, it's my favorite team out of all the sports that I root for. Um, I'm very optimistic about the pitching rotation, but I still think that there are a lot of question marks that have yet to be sorted out. And just like last year, I worry a lot about injuries. So um, I'm hopeful for the season, um, but I'm going to say trading rich just because it's in my DNA as a Mets fan to, to be pessimistic and to think that the sky is going to I, th I think we'll try and pivot back a little bit more to finance here. Trading rich, trading cheap, the long short hedge fund industry. And you know, I say this. I think um, one of the one of the major hedge fund companies or hedge fund sort of data providers noted last year that there were more closures than any year since two thousand and eight. Um, there were not very many new starts. There were negative net closure closures among the industry as a whole. Um, do you think the long short fund business model is one that's going to continue to be around or do you think that the sort of ship has sailed on the glory days of, of equity hedge funds? I'm going to say trading cheap on this one and, and obviously with everything going on recently you would expect somebody to say trading rich. 
Um, I think what's happened in the industry is that there have been so many talented guys at and gals at funds who have gone out to start their own funds um, that you've almost had diluted talent across the entire pool. And, and maybe as some of those um, kind of condense a little bit, you'll get, you know, so the ones that survive, as it were, will um, will be really good. I have a lot of respect for you know the the people at funds that that do the work that they do, and I think they're brilliant, and um, I think that they could do quite well. Um, so I, I'm going to say that they're. I think people are overreacting to it right now. I think they've had a, a bad couple of years, but I think they'll be back on their skis and and doing fine. It's interesting you frame it in terms of too much supply of talent as opposed to not enough supply of talent because I, I mean I think most people say oh well hedge fund returns have been bad you know like it's interesting that you go to and again I, I, I mean I, I wouldn't say that this is a bad thing that you would think about it in this way but it's interesting that you that you shift gears like that um, because I think the the common view is that there isn't enough talent in the industry in terms of generating alpha. Yeah, and that's, I, I just think that there are, I mean, I guess the way that I would look at it is almost like a league that's expanded too much. So there are like too many of the stars on too many different teams instead of condensing them on one team where they would be much better as a single unit. Um, so I, I think that is is part of it. And I, you know, as things, you know, as, as the industry becomes more condensed again, I'm hoping that that'll be, you know, that'll be something that kind of works itself out a little bit. Is that consolidation something that you've seen in terms of just keeping track of clients across different businesses and seeing how personnel tend to move around? Do you think the industry is consolidating at all, or do you think that um, it's more the same? Uh, I mean, we still see a, a decent number of new funds popping up. Usually, you know, somebody that we'd cover at a specific hedge fund, you know, we'll we'll hear from them that they're starting their own fund or see them doing a startup. It's just not happening as much as it did you know, a couple of years ago, for example. So I think it's still happening, um, just not as much as it as it was um, previously. This is going to be controversial. Trading rich or trading cheap, New York pizza. And I say this again. I want to I want to emphasize trading rich or trading cheap because I, I New York pizza is phenomenal, but it's hard to find somebody who thinks that New York, hard to find somebody outside of the city of Chicago that says, yeah, New York pizza it's overrated or it's too many people like it. I have been sort of pulled out of the bubble of New York City over the past eight months or so. I would tend to say that New York pizza is trading rich. Too many people think it is the bar none best pizza in the world. What do you what do you think? Do you think it is what 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 trading rich or trading cheap? I'm I'm saying trading cheap and what I'll my my controversial statement will be that Brooklyn pizza is far superior to Manhattan pizza. Okay, that's interesting. So let's let's hear exactly what you mean by Brooklyn cuz I don't consider a distinction between the two. So so tell us the difference between Brooklyn and Manhattan pizza. It's it's not so much a difference in style like you'd say Chicago pizza versus New York pizza. It's the actual pizza shops themselves. So they're a lineup of absurdly good pizza shops. In Brooklyn, if you think about like the Lucalis and Giuseppinas and Defaras of the world, um, they're just so much better, in my opinion, than anything I've had in Manhattan. Um, Lucali is one in particular um, in Carroll Gardens, I believe, in Brooklyn, that it's like the personal pizza spot of Jay Z and Beyonce and David Beckham goes there all the time. And it is, they don't do a lot of different things, they just do pizza and calzone. You can't get anything else there. But it is literally the best pie that I think anybody listening to this would ever have if you go there. And I don't make lofty predictions like that, um, as you as you heard me say about the Mets before. So um, that's definitely one that I would I would travel to Brooklyn from Queens to get a Lucali pizza. I would not travel from Queens to Manhattan to get a pizza. So New York pizza overall, trading cheap. Manhattan pizza is really rich. And uh, Brooklyn pizza is really cheap. Yes, that's how I would break it down. Great. PJ Gorinsky of Bespoke Market Intelligence. Uh, what's the Twitter handle where folks can follow you and see some of the insights we talked about today from from survey work and keep an eye on what Bespoke Intel is up to? It's just at Bespoke Intel.
at Bespoke Intel on Twitter. Uh, PJ is a colleague of mine, and it was great to have him on today. Thanks very much for joining us, man. Thanks, George. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.